Amen. Thank you, Marquita. If you haven't turned to John 9 yourself, make sure that you do, because you'll want to follow along in this story as we walk our way through it. Um, I remember growing up that uh, one of the things I hated most was that moment in the morning when mom or dad would come in and turn on the lights. And uh, you would roll over and cover yourself up and just groan and don't act like you haven't done that uh, or did that as a kid. You'd groan at the lights. Uh, and so one of my greatest joys as a father now of five is to be able to go in and flip on the lights and to see um, some of them joyfully waking up in the morning, but most of them, some of them. Uh, rolling over, covering themselves, hiding in that far nook of the, their bed because they don't want the, the, the light to come on. And we, we've all, ex all experienced that. When the light is turned on, when we've been in a movie and you come out uh, and it's just so bright and you shield and you block yourself, you kind of want to go back in uh, or in the morning that you've done that. But there are other moments where you're desperate for the light and, and you, you've, you're feeling uh, your way around, you need to see something and you can't see it, and, and when the light turns on, you're so thankful because all of a sudden you can see that obstacle, that thing you're trying to grab. And, and both of those reactions are, are normal depending upon the, the situation. And, and as Jesus has already in John chapter 8 said, I am the light of the world, emphatically uh, in, in the language that he used, saying, I and I alone am the light of the world, saying that with his words, he now in John chapter 8, in one sense, is kind of flipping on the lights. And there's going to be a one side uh, of this entire story, their reaction is going to be like the teenager reaction in the morning at 6 o'clock when the lights flip out, just like, oh no, they can't, shielding themselves, rejecting it, saying, turn it off. No, that's not, that's not good. We don't want that. But there's going to be another reaction on the other side of that, that when the light is turned on, uh, everything seems as, as it should be, uh, and, and that they welcome it, and that they love it, and that they can actually see now for the very first time, both physically and spiritually. And so as we are coming through this, this passage, I want you to uh, see that. And that's how my points are going to work as we walk through this passage, trying to see both a bad reaction and a good reaction on, on both sides of this story. And what I want us to, to see in the end is that the Word of God displays the works of God so that you might hear, see, and believe. The Word of God, that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, He displays in this story the works of God so that even just one individual might hear, see physically, but also spiritually and believe. And so let's consider John 9 together. Uh, Marquita read it so well for us this morning. And in those first seven verses, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, you're going to see a false assumption by the disciples and a purposeful intervention by Jesus. A false assumption by the disciples and a purposeful intervention by Jesus. 
And we know it's purposeful because following chapter 8, as the disciples uh, and Jesus and the Jews were all in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths on the last day of the feast, and Jesus speaking to them, they went from belief uh, in John 8 all the way to desiring to stone Him. And in verse 59 of chapter 8, it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. And so he's left the temple at the Feast of Booths. And we're somewhere in between the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Dedication that comes a little bit later in John chapter 10. Maybe it's immediately as he left Jerusalem. It's likely he's still in town. Uh, But we're somewhere in between there. But John is saying as he passed by, uh, this story uh, begins to take place. It's a sovereign orchestration of events in, in this. It's not just a circumstance. It's, it, it's a sovereignly orchestrated event. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now, that would be different from a man who had lost his sight as he was growing up or uh, because of a specific sickness or an illness. And and in the disciples' minds, this stirred up a, a question for them. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, their question actually reveals their theology, doesn't it? Their question is revealing that they feel like circumstances like blindness from birth um, would have had to come about because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin. But just, just play that out for yourself in your mind. This man was born blind, which means they think he could have sinned in the womb Uh, so bad that God would have cursed him with blindness from birth. Or his parents sinned so egregiously that their, their child was then afflicted with blindness from birth. They have fallen into the trap that sadly many of us fall into. And in Eastern religions, there's a word for it. It's called karma. And we as Christians, we don't believe in karma, and yet if you're honest with yourself, you probably, like me, fall into a karma-like thought process at certain times. When something bad comes upon you, uh, someone says something rude to you, you get sick, you crash your car, whatever it may be, and all of a sudden, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I knew because I did that, this has happened, or what did I do wrong? You, you may, maybe you're just more gracious to yourself, like, what did I do? to deserve, you know, something like this. But Jesus tries to reorient their their thinking. Um, We need to take the whole Bible's perspective on this issue regarding this specific suffering. And and many of you were here. I wish all of you were here this morning for our field training classes. Colton taught us so well how to disciple people who are suffering and how helpful that was. And we were able to talk through that. And I bet you if you bought him lunch sometime this week or the next couple of weeks, he'd probably reteach it for you over the table 
uh, or you could go and ask him for the notes that he taught from if this topic is um, important to you at this time. But um, um, circumstances, suffering like that is a result of sin, no doubt. But generically, sin. Because we can go back all the way to the Old Testament and see that there was a perfect world. But when Adam and Eve sinned against God, sin entered the world. Um, Suffering entered the world at that time. So is suffering and blindness from birth a result of sin? Yes. But not, not this man's specific sin. It goes all the way back to Adam. All the way back to the very beginning. Now... That doesn't mean that there aren't some aspects of suffering and consequence, Christian, that are because of your sin. There are natural consequences uh, of, of smoking and abusing alcohol and living a dangerous life. There are certain consequences. And we talked about this morning. Uh, in either situation, whether sin is just the result of the, uh, I'm sorry, suffering is just the result of the fall in our life, or whether suffering is the result of sin in our life, the answer is to look to Jesus. If it's because of our sin, we do need to repent. We do need to turn. We need to look to Jesus who paid it all on the cross and rose from the dead and offers us a hope of eternal life with Him. If our suffering isn't because of sin, then we still need to look to Jesus who suffered perfectly, innocently on the cross for us uh, and again was buried and rose from the dead offering us hope of eternal life. But Jesus says in this, he, he, he highlights their false understanding uh, of this man's blindness and he answers them in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you ever think that the suffering that you experience that's not the result of any of your sin, but just the result of living in a fallen world might be so that the works of God might be displayed in your life? both for your good or others' good or your belief or someone else's belief. It's a humbling thought to, to think. It, it's one that puts us in our place and, and will cause us later this week when we face suffering of, of any kind to consider, Lord, is, is this so that your works might be displayed? We can at least rest, Christian, in in the truth of God's Word in Romans that He can work all things for the good of those who love Him, even suffering. And yet Jesus says in this moment, this is happening so that the works of God might be displayed in Him. That would mean then that suffering is the canvas for God to display His works. And most artists who um, are of any good skill, they take a blank canvas and they begin to make something beautiful on top of that. But what, 
what this scripture is teaching us is that, like we just sang, just as I am, a canvas that's not blank, a canvas that is riddled with sin and imperfection, and yet Jesus can take that suffering, take that sin, take that imperfection, and, and make it beautiful in that. Our suffering is just one of the canvases for God to display His works in us. And this is shown throughout the Gospel of John. We can think forward to a story you may know well regarding the death of Lazarus where Jesus says in John 11.4 that this happened, the death of Lazarus happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified uh, through it. Or we could think to this same situation. You could go read Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 regarding the question of whether or not the Tower of Siloam fell on somebody because they were worse sinners than other people. And, and that whole idea, and, and Jesus does away with it. No, th- this, this suffering in this situation is so that God can display His works. And He, he says, he, uh, in a neat way right here in verse 4, He says, we must work the works of Him who sent me. He invites the disciples who ask the question in on this and says, we, we must be about the works um, of Him, which is God the Father who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And here He reminds them of what He said earlier in John chapter 8, verse 12. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's that light flipping on, wondering what will the response be, either shielding and covering and rejecting the light or or embracing the light, living in the light, using the light. And Jesus is hinting at the fact that He's not going to be here that much longer with these disciples. It's daytime right now, and Jesus says we must be about the Father's work. But He was hinting at a time when He would die, when He would be buried, um, when it would be night in one sense for a moment, until He would rise again. And it would be during that period where there wouldn't be real, very much ministerial work going on, but until then there was to be work to be done. Jesus was to ultimately finish that greatest work on the cross. But then Jesus would rise. He would be with his followers for another 40 days, um, doing even more works. Um, He would ascend to uh, the right hand of the Father, and he would empower his followers with the very Spirit of Christ. And then Uh, they would be sent out to be then the light of the world themselves. They were to go out and to proclaim that Jesus is the light, and because of their faith in Him, they now are the light as well. Jesus points this out in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Paul understands this when he says in Romans 13, verse 12, that the night is far gone and the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. There, there was a season where Jesus and His disciples were to be doing the works of God. 
until he would uh, die and rise from the dead. And, and we live in another season, another day, if you will, where we're to be doing the works of God. That greatest work, which is the work of faith that Jesus mentioned earlier, the works of Abraham that he did in John chapter 8, the work of faith. And so Jesus is encouraging them to be about his work. And so having said that, then in verse 6, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which John tells us means scent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. For the very first time, this man came back seeing because Jesus purposefully, uh, intentionally passed by and intervened in this man's life not only so that he could have physical sight, but as we heard read earlier, so that he could have spiritual sight. One of the things I want to note just about Jesus' uh, intervention in this moment is that we've never seen him act like this before. We've never seen him take dirt, spit in it, mix it, uh, knead it together, and anoint anyone's eyes for healing. In fact, it's pretty consistent that Jesus doesn't use the same two forms uh, of healing when he does so, lest anyone think, I can do the same thing afterwards and bring about the same result in anyone else's life. Because it's not about necessarily how the man was healed, but who healed him is, is most, the most important question. And yet, even in... Um, even in this, this action, um, what Jesus does here uh, alludes to Jesus as he declared in John chapter 8 with that both the I am statement of I am the light of the world, but also the I am statement in um, chapter 8 and verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus had declared to be God. And there's almost a sense of Jesus proving that he was God by going all the way back to creation and taking the dust of the earth as, as God did in creation and breathing life into it to create man. Now Jesus here is taking the dust of the earth again and mixing it with his spit and, and mixing it together and anointing this man's eyes to uh, reverse the effects of the fall that have been plaguing this man since birth. Jesus has said, I am God, and now he's, in another sense, um, attempting to prove that he is God. And there's so much more that we could say uh, about this, uh, this passage. But just the last thing I'll mention, I'll skip over the rest of this, the notes in this section is this, where Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me. It's not circumstantial that John is trying to let us know that when Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, in case you didn't know Hebrew, John would let you in on a little secret that Siloam means scent. Note the, the intentionality and the purposefulness of Jesus 
showing up at, at this moment and in this place to heal this man. He was sent. He was sent by God for this purpose and for this moment. And he sent this man to the, the, the pool of Siloam, which has Old Testament historical importance that I just don't have time to get to. So we can talk about that later and, and have some fun with it going back into our Old Testament. But note um, the, um, the purposeful intentionality and intervention of Jesus. But this false assumption that these uh, disciples had at the beginning. And note that when this man came away seeing, he had still never seen Jesus. He had only heard him. He had only heard the words of the Word of God, and yet he had experienced the works of God. He had heard. He had seen. And he will come to believe as he continues to grow in his faith. That's the first kind of division that we see between these interactions here. The others will go a bit quicker. And in verse 8 through 11, we see here a neighborly confusion and an accurate description. A neighborly confusion and an accurate description uh, by the, the man who was once blind but now sees. I wish we had a name for him, don't you? No? Okay, just me. I I wish we had a name for him. Uh, But Jesus leaves the scene. We don't see him come back till the very end of the story. And now John is recording these interactions between neighbors, Pharisees, parents, and the Pharisees again all the way until the end uh, of the chapter. And so the neighbors and those who had seen him before he was a beggar, were saying, is, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Is this not the one whom we've seen begging for years since he was a child because he was blind? And some said, yeah, it's, it, this is the man. It is he. But there were others who said no. But he's like him. He just looks like him. He, he bears the same resemblance of him, but, but that's not Johnny. That's, that's, not, that's not the man who you think it is. He looks like him, but it's not the same. And so they, they said to him, they had to ask him for himself. Um, but he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your, your eyes open? Notice the question, how? They want to know how. How did this happen? And he answered, And notice his answer. Notice his description of Jesus. The first time he he speaks, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. There is in this confusion among the neighbors of whether or not this is the man or this isn't the man and finding out there that it is the man they they want to know who did this and where is he on the other side of that you've got and and let me just say that is that's understandable i mean to to have seen this in a man and and now to see this in the man and to think that's not the same person you know 
Uh, you've been there, done that. You've seen a transformation of an individual, and you're like, there's no way that's the same person. Uh, or seeing a spiritual transformation in someone's life, and you hadn't seen them in a few years, and all of a sudden they love the things that you love as a Christian, and they hate the things that they once did that you once did too as a non-Christian, and you're like, there's no way. What happened in your life? They, they don't know how to make the sense of that, and that, that should be the case. It should be the case of physical healing and circumstances physical circumstances in someone's life, but that should also be the case spiritually in someone's life. That someone is so changed uh, by their faith in Jesus through repentance of sin that, that they're unrecognizable and it confuses people uh, of whether or not they're the, the same person. And yet on the other side of that, we have the man and his accurate description of Jesus. Again, he's not seen Jesus. Maybe he's heard stories while he's been begging over the, over the past uh, months and years as Jesus' ministry has uh, ramped up, um, but it doesn't say that we have any real interaction with Jesus up to this point, according to John at least. And so up to this point, his description of the person who healed him is simply Jesus, the man, the man they called Jesus. He doesn't have some theological, robust answer of who Jesus is, but he, he knows, at least from the talking of others around him, that it was Jesus who, who spit in the ground, made mud, anointed his eyes, and sent him on his way. But he hasn't been able to interact with him yet. And isn't this how faith um, begins in someone's life? They hear the words of Christ and their eyes are opened to the, the truth of the realities of, of Scripture and of, of Jesus' words. They can't answer everything. They don't know all the, the theological words or anything like that. They don't know the churchy words that we use. They don't know the lyrics to the hymns that we sing, but, but they know that there was something different about Jesus, and they're on a journey. The light was turned on, and they for years had rejected it and don't want it and covered it back up, but now they're saying, I want more of that. And, and, they, and he's beginning to wrestle with, with that. Jesus being man alone, though, is just insufficient. And, and there are countless religions that claim that Jesus is simply just a man. The Church of Christ scientists, Scientology, Sikhism, and humanism, all of those things, saying that Jesus is just man. And if this man stayed thinking that Jesus was just a man, that would not be enough to save him. It had to go further. And Jesus is purposefully intentional to make sure it goes a step further. But we see another division. Look with me now in verse 13 through 17. There we see a legalistic division and a logical realization. A legalistic division among the Pharisees, that's why I noted the legalism there, but a simple logical realization by this man who was once blind. And so, unsure of what really happened, the neighbors brought the man to the Pharisees to try to make sense of it all. In verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind, and let me, let me just say, that's a great way 
to describe this man and to describe a person who has come to faith in Jesus, uh, one who was once a slave to sin but now is a, a slave to righteousness, one who was once blind but now we see, right? You have to give mention and note of the change that has happened in our life because of Jesus. He's no longer called the blind man. He's now called uh, the man who was formerly blind. And in verse 14, now it was the Sabbath day, John lets us know, which is going to bring up the, the legalistic division that we see among the Pharisees. Uh, and, and this isn't the first time, and, and chronologically, it won't be the last time, but, but seven times in the Gospels, Jesus intentionally, purposefully heals um, or moves or works on the Sabbath to stir up the legalistic Pharisees and their wrong view of the Sabbath, to prove that He is God, to prove that, um, that He is not held sway by their extra additions, their oral traditions that they've added to the law. Jesus is not confined by those things, and He attempts to prove that by healing and working so many times on the Sabbath. And so, when John says it, that now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened His eyes, uh, he is letting us know that these Pharisees are going to have certain problems with that. Um, number one, he's making mud, which they had added to the Sabbath laws in saying that making mud or bricks or kneading bread like that is just too much work to be done on the Sabbath day. That's enough. So there's one, one strike. Healing on the Sabbath was the second strike. Uh, but, but three strikes and you're out. And he's anointing this man, which again, as a part of their oral tradition, was too much uh, for them. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. What did they ask him? How? Consider, everyone is caring, at least at first, about how, how this happened, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, for the second time he's now reporting, and, and in speaking with lawyers, you, you, you may know that one of the things that they are trying to do in court with a person on the stand is ask the same question 20 different ways to get you to answer it differently. Uh, another way, to show that you're not a trustworthy witness. And yet, it is amusing just to read this man's answers and how similar they are through the entire thing. He doesn't know a lot but he knows what happened. I was once blind. This man, Jesus, made mud, anointed me, sent me to the pool, and now I say, I don't know what else to tell you, but that's what happened. And so he relays the facts. He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. But he's getting simpler. He's getting faster at telling what happened, isn't he? Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, or 
He at least doesn't keep the Sabbath according to their extra additions to their oral law. And so there's some that saying, this man Jesus, he could not be from God since he's breaking this Sabbath law. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Okay, let's say he's not from God. Well, then if he's not from God, then he's a sinner like all of us. And how can a sinner do such things like this? So there's at least division even among the, the lawyers, the Pharisees, this legalistic division that is arising even among their own groups of un, uh, uncertainty of how this happened, who did this, uh, and, and how this man Jesus could have done this if he's not from God. And as a result of their division, it says in uh, the end of verse 16, there was division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And here's where we see this man's logical realization. Again, he doesn't know much. He's never met Jesus. He's never sat in a field training class or a worship service to be able to hear more about Jesus like that. But he's realizing, sitting and listening to these pharisaical arguments that that one side of the division has got to be right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, for him to have been able to heal me, he must be from God, which means he's a prophet. He must be a prophet. He must be sent from God, which is what that word means, with the words of God, to accomplish the works of God so that people would hear and see and believe. The logical realization of this unbelieving man at this point is simply he at least has got to be a prophet. He's gone from man to now prophet, from a simple human to someone who has been sent from God. And you can see this man is growing in his knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is while, uh, as the light was flipped on, while this other side of things is continuing to want to reject the light and want to get further and further away from it. And yet, even like uh, previously saying that Jesus was just a man, saying that Jesus is uh, uh, a prophet is insufficient. For there are other religions, specifically Judaism and Islam, that say that Jesus was a prophet, but they do not say that He was God, or specifically the Son of God. And those views of who Jesus is, simply because He said He was more than that, are insufficient. Insufficient for salvation. They do not describe true faith. And so it continues. And it's here, after the Pharisees were divided, that they go to the source, the parents. And here we see a threatening interrogation and a fearful corroboration in this uh, um, court scene that's happening all over the city, a threatening interrogation by these lawyers and a fearful corroboration by the man's parents. In verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until 
They called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? They went to the source and asked him um, straight up. And in verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. And so they corroborate uh, and say, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. Yes, he now sees. But we don't know how, nor do we know who. We find out from John that the reason they say that is in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They were willing to corroborate as long as it wouldn't cost them anything. But as soon as it was going to cost them something, they pleaded the fifth, if you will, in this court scene. They said, we don't know. I can't, I can't answer that question. Which, when you just really consider it, 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 it can't really be true. That they don't know how it happened. They don't know even who was done. Maybe they don't know all the details about it, but nor did their son, who was willing to at least speak the truth about those things. And for fear of themselves being thrown out of the synagogue, which is interesting to think because John's writing this decades later to a Jewish community uh, and saying that even in Jesus' time, there was suffering and persecution for acknowledging that Jesus was the Christ. So was true when John was writing decades later at the end of the first century. And so is true 2,000 years later for us. For acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ and, and following Him, there is certain consequences, certain sufferings that we will have to endure, certain persecutions at different times and in different ways. Christian, let us not fall into the trap of only being willing to acknowledge a relationship with Jesus like these parents were willing to acknowledge a relationship with their son when it cost them nothing. But as soon as it cost them something, they said, we don't know. We don't want anything to do with that. When you're faced with a question about your faith and what, who you think Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian in this world and um, those kinds of things at school tomorrow, at work, with family members. And you get to that moment uh, where being a Christian is easy up to this point, but then saying that you believe that just seems bigoted and arrogant and ignorant to the world around you. Don't be fearful and fall away like these parents did, but press in and trust that, that Christ is, is good enough. Even if you don't know all the answers 
Be willing to acknowledge that and walk in the truth and trust the Lord in, in, in moving ahead. We need to be able to, to do this as well. We need to be able uh, to, to trust the Lord, not fear being put out of the synagogue or for us being put out of one group or out of one family uh, or out of even a job if we confess Jesus as Christ. Take it from the Apostle Paul who was put out of plenty of synagogues. Just read the, um, the story in the book of Acts. Um, consider what, what Paul says that uh, of having been put out of many synagogues, says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, um, that nothing will be able to then separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Though he may be separated from a building or separated from a people, nothing would separate him from the love of Christ. Or consider Jesus' very own words, where he uses this same word regarding fear and urges his followers in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We continue on. We get to verse 24 where the Pharisees are unsatisfied with their, their own division. They're unsatisfied with the parents' answers, and so they come back to the man again. And we find an unbelieving condemnation of the Pharisees, followed by this amazing conclusion uh, of the man who was once blind. An unbelieving condemnation and an amazing conclusion. In verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. It's not necessarily stop and praise God and honor Him, but essentially saying, remember, God is watching you. You're standing before God. God is the judge. Give glory to God, they say to Him. We know that this man is a sinner. Speaking of Jesus. And he answered, verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Again, what an example of humility. I don't know all the answers. I don't even know who he is. I've never even seen him, but I know that I was blind, and I know that I see. Christian, this is your testimony of all of the contradictions that people want to throw at you. You have this. I was a sinner dead in my sins and trespasses, but now I've been made alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2. And so they said to him in verse 26, what did he do to you? Again, what? And how did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already. So getting sick of it a bit, I think, probably up to this point. I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Which was essentially a slap in the face to these guys, as they will show we would never want to be a disciple of this man, this sinner. We're disciples of Moses, they go on to say. They reviled him, saying, 
you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, as if that were better. Even though Jesus said in John chapter 5, if you listen to Moses, he was actually speaking of me. If you were a true disciple of Moses, you'd be a true disciple of me, Jesus said in John 5, if you remember. Um, But we know, they say in verse 29, that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Which is funny because earlier they said we do know where he comes from. We do know what town he comes from and we don't like it. But now they say we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. To him, it's, it's like I said earlier, a logical realization. He had to come from God. He opened my eyes, he says to them. We know that God does not listen to sinners, he says. He's, he's now teaching them. We know, including himself with them, which was probably an assault to them as well. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper, or could be translated fearer of God, and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And that was true. You can't find it in our Old Testament. There may be some traditions of that potentially happening, but what this man says is true, and these Pharisees couldn't argue it. There's been no historical reflection like that. If this man, speaking of Jesus in verse 33, were not from God, he could do nothing. But he did something. So he must be something more than just a man. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. It was like this man was attempting to try to turn, like shaking the light switch. Like, do you guys not see this thing? Do you not see this light that that is showing us who the Messiah is, who the Son of God? Do you not see this? He's attempting to teach them, even though he's still yet not come to a full realization of who Jesus is. This is the the common grace at work in this man's life all the way to the point where Jesus enters the scene again in verse uh, 35 and following where here we see a gracious revelation and a faithful confession. A gracious, purposeful, intentional revelation of Jesus to this man who has a faith-filled confession. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And if you too are cast out for your faith, he'll hear about it as well. For it'll be under his sovereign uh, allowance and even purpose to work it for good. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, having found him. Again, this man had a certain knowledge and experience with God, but he had yet to come to saving faith in Jesus. And Jesus went out of his way to find him. For this is the business of Jesus. He, he left heaven and came to earth to find us, to seek and save that which 
is lost, to turn on the lights so that all those um, who were God's children would repent of their sins and believe in Him. Jesus found Him. What intentionality. What purposefulness. And we can see this in our lives as well. An intentionality to find us wherever we were at. And just like we sang before I stood up, He found us just as we were in the midst of our sin, dead in our sins and trespasses, and yet revealed Himself to us by the Word of God to be able to see the works of God in Christ Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection to one day believe in God. And that's what happens to this man. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which, when Jesus says that, it has plenty, which I've mentioned before, of Old Testament connections to Daniel chapter 9. But what Jesus is saying is, do you believe in the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, who has come to seek and save that which is lost? And the man answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And maybe having heard a familiar voice from what had happened earlier in the story, and yet not having realized who, never having seen Jesus, when Jesus says this, everything changes for the man. He, uh, Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. He had both in this moment seen Jesus physically because he had been healed physically of his sight. But he had also seen Jesus spiritually for the very first time. And in that moment, he has the shortest, simplest confession that we could probably find. Lord, God, Savior, I believe. Which is why when Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, for those who have heard and, and those who uh, have come to understand and, and those who have come to believe, if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. In this moment, this man confesses with a heart full of faith, and is saved. And he worshipped him. And yet on the other side, though the lights went on for this man and he embraced the light and went towards the light, on the other side of that, there's that whole other group that though the lights went on, they, they wanted no more of the light. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And when this was all happening, others were around, the Pharisees were near him, it says, and they heard these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so we have just a simple question and a simple response here. 
when the light who is Jesus Christ is, is turned on in your life and the truth and reality of who Jesus is and what he has done is, is presented to you. What has been or what is your response today? Is it one of rejection and shielding and rolling over and making excuses and coming up with contradictions and not wanting that or wanting it up until a certain point until it would potentially cost you and then not wanting it anymore? Or when that light of the revelation of who Jesus is and what He has done on the cross and in the res resurrection is flipped on for you. Have you embraced it? Gone towards it, knowing that that light was brought to you uh, intentionally, purposefully for your salvation? And are you still then walking in the light as He is in the light? When the light is turned on, it, 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 a, a judgment is happening, a division is happening, and there will be some who shield and reject, and there will be others who uh, want to receive it and move towards it. And the question before you is, which side uh, uh, of these arguments throughout this story are you on? And to be on the side of simple faith in Jesus, it doesn't take perfect church attendance. It doesn't take a history of giving to the church. It doesn't take a theological degree. It doesn't take you knowing a bunch of churchy words. It doesn't even take you having a pretty good moral record up to this point. It simply takes you believing what has been presented to you this morning, that Jesus is God, specifically the Son of God, who left heaven with God to come live here on this earth and to live the life that you couldn't live and to die the death that you deserve, ultimately rising from the dead, conquering sin and death so that you could have life in his name and eternal life with him forever in heaven. Why wouldn't you simply say, as the light has been flipped on this morning, Lord, I believe. Let's pray. God, would you help us? For those of us who have believed, would you keep us? Would you keep shining? Don't ever stop shining the light of the gospel into our lives. Don't ever let us stray from the light back into the corners where the darkness is tempting. Lord, keep shining. Keep shining the gospel as we read it each and every morning, as we gather together on Sundays to sit under it and to sing it and to pray it. Keep shining the Word of God into our lives through the people of God as we gather together throughout the week. Lord, open our eyes to continue to see the works of God, both in Christ but all around us, that we would hear and see and believe. And God, I ask too that if there is someone here who up to this point, every time the light has been turned on, they want nothing to do with it, rejecting it, thinking that they're good without it, confused about it, and so unwilling to believe it, okay with it up to a certain point, but then no further, Lord, would you 
shine brightly this morning. Reveal yourself to them through your word. Let them see the final ultimate work that was accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as you came and found this man, that you would find them today and that they would respond, Lord, I believe. And having believed, Lord, would they stand now with us like the, once man, the, the, the man that was once blind and worship. Worship you for the very first time. Lord, help us in these things. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.